We're going to be all over the place. There are about five different places in the Bible, Old and New Testament, I want you to look at today. But we're going to talk about the the idea of Jesus being exalted from uh, a bunch of different scriptures. And uh, we will pray the Lord speak to us through his word this morning. Let's, Let's come before him and ask for his blessing. Thank you, Father. Lord, Father, we do come before you in the name of Jesus this afternoon. We thank you for being here with us, Lord, for the promise of your word that where two or more are gathered in your name, that, Father, you're present with us. And our prayer, Lord, is that your Holy Spirit would speak to us individually. Father, that you would provide us wisdom that we need so badly. Father, you know the issues before us today. And, Lord, even the things coming in the near future that we are totally unprepared for. And, Father, we rely entirely upon your help. And, Father, your provision, your protection, your encouragement and wisdom. Bless our efforts, Lord, to walk with you. Father, cause us, Lord, to have an urgency to walk as your witnesses in these last days. We do want to lift up the concert to you this evening. We pray, Lord, for Izzy Ray and for the band and, Lord, for the message that your Holy Spirit would just breathe life into the hearts of people. We thank you, Lord, for the souls you touched in Old Town Pasadena this past week. Lord, bless us with your spirit today. We thank you and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What, what is the issue that you would identify as the single most important thing of your life? Your family, your marriage, your wardrobe, don't laugh, the birth of your children, your position at work, your financial achievements, maybe some accreditation or certificate or degree, this is the thing that I have accomplished. If you had to list one thing in your life to characterize the master passion of your life, What would it be? Would other people agree that this is, in fact, the focus of your life? And if so, what does that say about you? God's passion is the salvation of this world. That would be the world from John 3.16. And uh, pretty obviously, if you're at your eyes on current events, you can tell the world could use some serious saving right about now. All these troubles that we are having, all the things facing us on the evening news. God knew this was all coming. He could see all this mess a long way off. One of the reasons that he's been working on the issue for so long, he has a plan. He has had a plan, actually, from the beginning. And I don't want to shock you, but actually you are part of God's plan. You see, God is not like us in all kinds of ways. He doesn't just launch out into the middle of an issue with the express purpose of, okay, well, let's see what happens. He doesn't do that. He knows what happens. He knows. He has a plan. And that's where we come in. You and I are here to discover his plan in all of its amazing complexity and astonishing beauty. God's plan really is beautiful. Actually, the most beautiful plan. And the outworking of it is even better. We are here, meaning we are alive and we are here today. 
to discover God's incredible plan. And hopefully to understand how we fit into it practically. There are two very important people in God's plan. The first person is a person about which the people of our world are terribly confused. This is Jesus. People are very confused about Jesus, unfortunately. It's a terrible thing. And in many ways, Jesus is God's plan. He is the plan. Jesus is the original example of the old adage that you've heard so many times. If you want something done right, do it yourself. Well, Jesus wanted it done right. So he did it himself. When you think about your future, something probably that you've done your whole life, one of the ways that we think about our future is to imagine things as we would like them to be. When we, when we do, our thoughts sort of start out like, wow, wouldn't it be great if fill in the blank, you know? Wouldn't it be great? We go on to imagine, you know, a perfect world or maybe a world that's not so bad or even a world where there's hope for the days to come. And in our thoughts, we are exalted. Now, I don't mean like we imagine ourselves to be king of the world or anything like that. Some people do that. But for the most part, we just imagine ourselves in a very positive light. We like to do that. You know, my idea for the perfect world in the future is the world where uh, our pur- my purposes are accomplished. You know, the hungry, hungry are fed, the poor are clothed. The sick are healed, all those kind of, you know, great things. My family's well taken care of, of course. We have long vacations. Um, Maybe all my dreams come true. People find out that I was right after all. You know, all those people who thought, oh, you don't know nothing. But now they find out, oh, hey, he really did know something. It's interesting, but, you know, God's plan is similar in some ways. Except for, I mean, this one very important detail, and that is that when he's exalted... When God is exalted, when Jesus is exalted, it's not about him. I mean, it is about him, obviously, he's exalted. But it's not for it's not a it's not a selfish thing. It's really not. When Jesus is exalted, it is the very best thing for every person that has ever lived. The very best thing. Not to mention the angels and all of his creation. Check it out. Even the fallen angels and the devil will cease to do themselves harm as Jesus is exalted. Because all creation will again be set in proper order. What a day that will be. Like Rapunzel says, best day ever. And it will be. But there is... You know, there's something very, very different about the exaltation of Jesus as well. When we think of being exalted ourselves, you know, uh, first of all, it's generally some kind of a misunderstanding. It's a mistake. Like, you know, I don't know, like uh, somebody winning the Nobel Peace Prize for doing absolutely nothing. Or uh, maybe Matthew McConaughey at the Academy Awards last year advertising to everybody that he was his own hero, you know. At least he's honest. He's an honest guy, you know, but that's a mistake. It's a mistake. You don't want to say that in public. You really don't. When Jesus is exalted, it is anything but a mistake. When Jesus is glorified, it is the world set in proper order. 
Cornelius meets Peter for the first time in Acts chapter 10. And Peter walks up. Cornelius is on his face. And Peter says, stand up, stand up. I myself am also a man. I'm just like you. I don't know if the Pope still does that. But, you know, in John chapter 20, Thomas meets the risen Christ in the upper room. Sees the scar in his side and the holes in his hands and feet. And he says, my Lord and my God. Jesus didn't say stop that. He didn't say I'm a man like you. Although he he is a man. Jesus the Christ today is a man. Seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven in a glorified human body. kind of body you're going to have. But he is also very different from us because he is God. He is God the creator. When people tell me I've, I've done a great job about something, honestly, it's, it's a little awkward. Um, it's not quite as awkward as when they tell me I've done a really lousy job, but it's a little awkward. But still, the reason is because I know that any real benefit that takes place is because of the Lord. And the Lord is the one, he deserves the credit. He is. He is the repository of all glory. Glory belongs to him. When you take glory and you apply it to any other person, it's misplaced. It doesn't belong there. And this is why... You know, I mean, so often when people are glorying him in their situation, they're just this far away from being humbled dramatically. People walking down the red carpet, you know, waving, looking great. Oh, look, here comes... What is she wearing? Oh, my gosh. You know? Or you see, you know, sports athletes pumping their fists, you know, and then fall down. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's true. The glory is the Lord's. It belongs to him. You can celebrate with him. If you choose to, and that's a great thing to do. But we need to remember who's who and what's what. Glory only looks good on God. Today I want to look at one aspect of the accomplishment of Christ's exaltation. From five different passages in Scripture. Some from the Old Testament and some from the New Testament. We're going to start out in Isaiah chapter 30 looking at Jesus exalted for justice. Jesus exalted for justice. You know, in the New Testament, the Old Testament is revealed. Meaning that all the details of God's plan and His purpose in the Old Testament are clearly revealed in the New Testament. The Old Testament, in the Old Testament, the New Testament is concealed. Meaning that all of God's fulfilled promises laid out in detail in the New Testament are traceable back to prophecies and allusions in the foretelling foretelling of the Old Testament. It's all there. And if you know the New Testament, you should have very little trouble finding Christ in the Old Testament because he is on every single page. About halfway through the book of Isaiah, here in chapter 30, God is in the process of pronouncing his judgment upon the nation Israel. God is judging Israel. Judgment because they have chosen to reject the word of God. Judgment because rejecting the word of God is rejecting the God of his word. You can't have one without the other. And God is faithful 
to provide consequences of all kinds of different flavors. He can do it. It's not his first choice, especially eternal judgment. Heavens, no. But given no other alternative, he will bring eternal judgment because the consequences are actually that high. It's all about eternity, one way or another. And that really is the problem that so often people give God no other option. All he needs is an open heart, a willing mind, and he will do the rest because, remember, he's got a plan. He has a plan. And that is really what we see right here, Isaiah chapter 30, in verse 18. God's plan of salvation. Therefore, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore, he will be exalted that he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for him. Okay, how is this God's plan of salvation? How is this Jesus exalted in justice? I don't even see Jesus in there at all. Good questions. Let's break it up into small bite-sized pieces and see what it says. Therefore, the Lord will wait. Okay, the book of Isaiah is written in the 8th century before Christ. So God is in this process of bringing judgment on the nation. And now there's sort of a parenthesis in the book. And he says, therefore, the Lord will wait. Whatever he's going to do, it's not going to happen in the 8th century B.C. And he will wait. Why? That he may be gracious to you. Okay, so God is waiting to be gracious. That is, God's waiting so that he can offer you favor and forgiveness that you do not deserve. How's he going to do that? And therefore, he will be exalted. Okay. So God, being exalted, is going somehow to make a way for his people to receive favor that they don't deserve and grace, like Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace you've been saved through faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Okay, so God's going to provide this by him being exalted some way. And then what does it say? That he may have mercy on you, not only grace, but also mercy. Grace is favor from God that you don't deserve. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve, which is judgment. So those two work hand in hand really nicely together. We need them. Definitely what we need. Actually, if we try and please God in our own ability, we're sunk. We're in a lot of trouble. Titus 3.5 says, Not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He has saved us through the washing of regeneration, renewing of the Holy Spirit. People should tell this to the religions of the world. They really should. Not by righteous works of righteousness which we have done. It does not work that way. How good do you have to be to please God? No. Wrong question. You have to trust in God's goodness. You will never, ever, ever be good enough to please God in your own ability. And this is the default position, you know, and when you're talking to people about Christ, when you witness to people about Christ, that's the point you reach pretty rapidly with them. Well, I'm a good person. I'm as good as other people. You know, there's nobody going to heaven that's much better than me. I'm pretty good. But it's not about your goodness. Your goodness will purchase nothing for you in the presence of God because your goodness, what does Isaiah say? 
is like filthy rags in the presence of God. Your hope has to be in God's goodness. You have to, according to God's plan, you have to be attached to God and take advantage of His goodness. And then it goes on to say, again, back in Isaiah chapter 30, for the Lord is a God of justice. Now, hold on to this for a second. There has to be some sacrifice, some payment for our our failure, for our rebellion. And folks, let me tell you, we are all rebels. We have all rebelled against the Lord. We have all willingly done what we know is wrong. New believers, God help them. They're just wonderful. Every once in a while I get a new believer come into my office and they'll say, I'm going to go to hell for sure now. I know. Why? What happened? Well, I just, I did something bad. Well, you know, well, you ask God to forgive you? Yeah, yeah. But he's not going to forgive me. Why not? Because I knew it was the wrong thing before I did it. (laughs) Okay, okay, slow down, slow down. If the only people to ever go to heaven were people who only sinned by accident, and Jesus, Jesus would be the only one there. He would be very lonely in heaven. You know? Unfortunately, we all transgress the commandments of God. We have all sinned in our intentionally in our flesh. We have dropped the ball. And the Lord is a God of justice. Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Hebrews 9.22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission. Pretty plain, don't you think? There has to be a payment. How is God being exalted going to remove the penalty for our sins? Look back at that phrase, okay? And it says right there at the beginning, verse 30, And therefore he will be exalted. The Lord will wait that he may be gracious unto you, and therefore he will be exalted. We understand the book of Isaiah is written in classical Hebrew. So it's very different from English. I want you to consider that this one word, exalted, could very well be translated, lifted up. What does that mean for us? Let's recap again. From the 8th century B.C., the Lord will wait, that he may be gracious and forgiving. And therefore, because of this, his purpose, he will be exalted or lifted up so that he can have mercy on us because he is the God of justice. And then at the very end of the verse there, blessed are all those who wait for him. Question. Is this a reference to the death of Jesus Christ on the cross more than 700 years before his birth? And I want to suggest to you that it is. And that there is a thread of verses that support this view. Not only that Jesus is being exalted as the chosen sacrifice of Isaiah chapter 30, the one that we have waited for, but that the cross is the beginning of an amazing process of Jesus being exalted to his rightful place. Turning your Bible over to John chapter 3, Gospel of John chapter 3 in the New Testament. In the Gospel of John, in chapter 3, very beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's in Jerusalem and actually has opportunity to meet with a man of the Pharisees. His name is Nicodemus, a man of the Jewish religious leaders. And we're going to pick up John chapter 3 around verse 9. Nicodemus is having some trouble trying to understand the ideas that Jesus is communicating to him. In John 3, 9, Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, 
We speak what we know. We testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So at this point, Jesus changes gears on Nicodemus. It seems like he's saying, well, you're just not getting it here, bud. You're not understanding. I'm trying to tell you things I know. And for some reason, you're not accepting my witness. But in the next few verses, it's kind of crazy. Jesus lays out in front of this man what is to be, I think, probably the most straightforward and candid outline for God's work in his ministry. In just a few words, he's going to give him the whole, the whole deal. Starting in verse 13, he says, No one has ascended into heaven, but he who came down from heaven. That is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. First thing, Jesus identifies himself. Now, back at the beginning of the chapter, in John chapter 3, verse 2, the very first thing Nicodemus said when he met Jesus was, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. So Jesus is really confirming what Nicodemus said, that he definitely came from God. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man. He's, he's identifying himself as the one who came from God. And then Jesus totally comes at him out of left field which is pretty normal for Jesus. Jesus is either always saying or doing something that you absolutely don't expect. In verse 14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What? What does this have to do with Moses or a serpent? or What, are you, what is he talking about? Although, I mean, obviously Nicodemus would have been familiar. It's interesting that the Lord references Moses here. Moses... To the Pharisees, I mean, he was their superhero. He was the guy that they looked up. In fact, so much so that they distorted his influence way beyond God's purpose. They talked about the law of Moses as if Moses was really the author. In the book of Acts, one of their gripes with Stephen, for which they put him to death, was that he spoke against Moses. Oh no! My goodness, how could he? To bring up Moses in front of a Pharisee, you're definitely going to get their attention. But the thing Jesus brings up here is a reference to something Moses did at God's direction back in the book of Numbers. Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness. Moses' action was to provide deliverance for the children of Israel. And Jesus says he will be lifted up in the same way as this serpent that Moses lifted up. Even so, the Son of Man will be lifted up. There's really, I mean, it's, it's hard to tell. You can't tell what Nicodemus really thought about the situation at this point. He has nothing left to say. He doesn't open his mouth until chapter 7 where he just asks a question. Uh, and if that amazed Nicodemus, then the next statements had to just totally push him over the edge, starting with, Verse 16. You know, John 3.16. The Christian, evangelical Christian scripture. John 3.16. Can you imagine listening to Jesus say that? 
listening to it come out of his mouth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And you guys know about the name of the only begotten Son. Name of Jesus. The Hebrew translation is Jehovah's Shua. From Joshua. It means God is salvation. That's Jesus' name. Jesus' name is who he was, is what he did. God is salvation. Now, you can see Nicodemus just standing there with his mouth hanging open. When you look up amazed in the dictionary, there's probably a little picture of Nicodemus there right next to him. I, he had to have friends that knew he, were, he was going to talk to Jesus. So did you go to see Jesus? Yeah, yeah, I did. What was it like? What did he say? Well, I told him we knew he was from God. Wow, what did he say? What did he say? He said he was going to give people eternal life. What? That's crazy. Yeah, I know. You know he's out there healing blind people. I know, I don't want to talk about it. Had to freak him out. I mean, it's just a lot to take in. Jesus is not like other people. He's really not. As he shares the truth with Nicodemus, notice the whole issue of salvation here in John 3 is attached to this this picture of Jesus being lifted up like the serpent that Moses lifted up in the wilderness. What does that mean? We see Jesus exalted for the salvation of believers. But we got another question. How does the situation with Moses... And the book of Numbers relate to what Jesus is doing 1,500 years later. For that answer, we have to look to Numbers. Numbers chapter 21. Jesus is exalted in the wilderness. In the book of Numbers, in chapter 21, the children of Israel, having been through the Passover, been passed over by the angel of death in Egypt, they escape by God's favor through the Red Sea, They have received the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai, hearing the audible voice of God from Mount Sinai. They head off on their trek through the wilderness towards the Promised Land. At this point, they don't know yet that it's going to take them 40 years. But as it is with people, this new life as nomads was not all that they had dreamed of. And so in Numbers chapter 21 and verse 4, Then they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way. And as the people spoke against God and against Moses, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. Speaking of manna there, which is an interesting point. So the Lord sent... Consequences. The Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Notice how they made that connection really quick. You know, they didn't think, Oh, it's just a coincidence. Snakes are here. They knew. They knew. They were convicted. Hey, When you drop the ball, God is a good parent. He lets you know. 
You don't sit there wondering, I wonder if it was because of that thing I did. You know. You know, you don't need a wonder. God tells you. He connects the dots for you. He shows you clearly. They ran to Moses. Moses, brave, brave, the snakes are killing us. So, in verse 8, then Moses said, The Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and it shall be that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. He put it on a pole. And so it was that if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Take that down to the CDC. See what they do with that. All you had to do was look at it and you would survive. Is that amazing? That doesn't make any sense. No, it doesn't make any sense. Except it worked. (laughs) Does it need to make more sense than that? It worked. Doesn't make any more sense than Jesus dying for you on the cross. And if you believe it, you'll be saved from eternal destruction and in this life as well. To the natural man, that doesn't make any sense at all. What does Paul say? 1 Corinthians 1.18 The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And in 125, because the foolishness of God is wiser than man, the weakness of God is stronger than men. Why? Why would Jesus connect himself to this situation? Think for a minute, okay? It's not that Jesus is connecting himself, but rather that this is part of God's plan from the beginning. Remember, God's got a plan. The serpent speaks of sin, obviously. This thing is made of bronze, and the metal bronze throughout the Scripture always speaks of judgment, the judgment of God. Like silver speaks of righteousness, gold speaks of deity, bronze speaks of judgment. That's why so many of the instruments of the tabernacle in the temple are made of bronze, like the bronze altar outside the tabernacle. Also, it happens to be very durable, giving us the perspective that God's judgment isn't just fly by night, doesn't come and go, isn't easy to do away with. We see the picture that God has painted 1,500 years before the coming of the Messiah. As God delivers his rebellious, stiff-necked people, he makes a sign for the future generations. The serpent, sin of bronze, judged on the pole on the cross. Sin judged on the cross in the person of Christ. One of my favorite scriptures for prophecy, Daniel 9.24, spoken not by a prophet, but by an angel, the angel Gabriel, speaking to Daniel. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for the holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision, to anoint the most holy. Everything in that statement is built around the death of Christ on the cross except sealing up vision and prophecy. Every other thing is built around the death of Jesus on the cross. And what are they? Finish transgression. Make an end of sins. Reconciliation for iniquity. Bring in everlasting righteousness. Anoint the most holy. Amazing. And who is the most holy? It's God, isn't it? Actually, it's Jesus. 
Jesus is the most holy that is being anointed. It's about his glory and his exaltation. What did Jesus say back in John 3? As Moses was lifted up, the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Do you ever think about how courageous Jesus is? I mean, to come to a world where not even one person will really understand what it is that you're doing and to be so alien, to be such an outsider, to surrender your life to save what are essentially your enemies. Is there anyone like this guy? Matthew 23, 12 says, Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Interesting that the exaltation, the the elevation of a person, directly related to their willingness and ability to humble themselves. Sort of the opposite of what the world teaches us, but then everything about Jesus is kind of the opposite of what the world teaches You know, it is a rare thing, it's very unusual for a person, any person, under any circumstances, to give their life for another person. And part of the problem is, we're just not wired that way. I might look at a situation and think, wow, somebody should give their life to save that person. (laughs) Somebody should should give their life to... You know, it's just, even if you wanted to, to try and force your you probably wouldn't be able to do it. Our ability to overlook our own personal interest is almost non-existent. And the other side of the coin is, you know, our self-interest is in great form. It's even rarer for a person to make a conscious decision. You know, it's one thing to dive in front of a truck to push a kid out of the way and die. That's sort of instinctive. And as you're doing, you think, what am I doing? What am I doing? Oh, no, no, why did I do that? You know, you might. But to sit down and intellig- make an intelligent decision that you're going to give your physical life to save somebody else, that is almost unheard of in history. And even more unusual, because that, really, that doesn't really sum it up for Jesus, even more unusual is a person that will do that with a full, detailed knowledge of the process and the pain that's involved. You know, when you call up your dentist and, and say you need, you need to come in, and he says, yeah, you, you know, it's going to be really painful. You know, that's okay. I can handle pain. Of course, afterwards, you'd have died. No, I never would have gone. You know, and when doctors tell you things are going to hurt, they, there's usually a reason. It's usually in our, our best interest to not know what's coming. But, you know, folks, Jesus didn't have that luxury. He knew every bruise, every wound, every blow, every last second of indescribable agony that would claim, he would claim as his own, to free your soul from eternal death. And it is no wonder to me, no wonder at all, that he was in the garden sweating great drops of blood. You see, he knew what was coming. He knew exactly what was coming. Look at the Gospel of John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Jesus exalted as God. In in the Gospel of John chapter 8, by this time, Jesus is engaged 
with the scribes and the Pharisees. But again, by this time in the gospel, they are actively seeking an opportunity to accuse him to the Romans. Even though he is teaching in the temple daily, they're, they're seeking to kill him. So they bring in this woman caught in the act of adultery, probably by their own device as well. And they ask him to pass sentence upon her, which is, I don't know if you realize this or not, but the Jewish people did not have the right under Pontius Pilate to execute capital punishment, which means they couldn't keep the law of Moses. Law of Moses said this person's supposed to die. They couldn't do it. They had to take the person to the Romans and the Romans would if they did then if they executed somebody, stoned somebody to death on their own, that was a capital offense in the eyes of the Romans. And so they brought this woman before Jesus, and they asked him, you know, Moses said we should stone her, what do you say? If he says, oh no, you can't stone her, then he's broken the law of Moses. He's discredited in front of the people. He's done. But if he says, well, that, well that's what the law says... That's what we have to do. We have to stone her. Well, then they go right to the Romans. Hey, this guy, Jesus, he just pronounced sentence on this woman that she should die. And now he's in trouble with Rome. So the the idea is here, there's no right answer. In fact, if you study all of the questions, the Pharisees and the Sadducees asked Jesus, you'll see that all of those questions had no right answer. And he was able to answer them all. (laughs) He is the God of the loophole. (laughs) He's really good. He found a way, you know, and and you know what he did. He said, okay, all right, she's got to be stoned. The one of you who has no sin, you throw the first stone. Go ahead. And they all left. And then, you know, he wound up um, actually sending her on her way and encouraging her to walk with him. I'm thinking probably this is the best day in this woman's life. You know, she, she becomes a follower of Jesus at some point, I'm sure. Then he gets into this heated discussion with the Pharisees. And in the following verses, folks, three times Jesus, standing in the temple in Jerusalem, makes the claim for himself that he is God the Creator. In verse 24, in verse 28, and in verse 58. Three times. By taking for himself the name of God from the conversation between Moses and God in the burning bush back in Exodus 3.14, the I am. Exodus 3.14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me. And he goes on to say, this name is going to be my memorial to the nation throughout the generations. I am, that's the name of, just like God to pick a verb for his name instead of a noun, you know, the, anyway. This is what Jesus says in in John chapter 8, verse 24. Jesus tells them that unless they believe that He is the Lord God, they will die in their sins. At the end of the chapter, in verse 58, He makes the most dramatic claim that Abraham, the father of the Jews, knew about Him and that before Abraham was, He was God. And then in between the two, in verse 28, Jesus associates His deity with their recognition of his deity with his death upon the cross. John 8, 28. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am... See that he there? 
See the word he? Notice how it's written in italics. That's been added by the translators. That's not in the original language. And the same thing is true in verse 24. I am he. And that I do nothing of myself, but as the Father taught me, I speak these things. He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. As he spoke these words, many believed in him. Notice, again, the word he, added by the translators. They're just trying to help us out. Sometimes I wish people wouldn't try and help us out so much. To claim that you are God is blasphemy, even if you're not standing in the temple in Jerusalem. Why didn't the scribes and the Pharisees, back in verse 24 even, take him to stone him on the spot? Other than the fact that it was illegal for them to kill people. By the time we get to verse 58, they do anyway. They try to. Chances are, folks, that Jesus was speaking Aramaic. He wasn't speaking Hebrew. He wasn't quoting the scripture in Hebrew. He was speaking Aramaic, which is Hebraic. It's similar, but it's not the same. So it's not like he was quoting from Exodus 3.14 directly. In addition to that, Good reason to think the religious leaders were not accustomed to having people claim to be God in the temple. So it may have caught them a little bit off guard. They weren't quite prepared for it. But if you look at their response in verse 25, they are a little shocked. And they're trying to figure, who are you? Who are you saying you are? What did he say? Did he say what I thought he said? They're trying to figure it out. But he had to say it two more times before they got it. By the time he gets to verse 58, they understand exactly what he's saying and they take up stones to throw at him because he is claiming that he is God, the creator. He's making that claim. And it is blasphemy to claim that you are God. Unless, of course, you are God. Then it's just the truth. Unfortunately, I don't think any of these guys were ready to consider that possibility. Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, when you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And so they would. When he was lifted up, they will know. They will see the fulfilled Old Testament prophecies in his death. They will see the sky go dark at midday. They will hear the accounts of people raised from the dead. They will hear of the veil in the temple split in two from top to bottom. They will hear of his resurrection. They will hear and see the witnesses of the disciples and the miracles performed by God's Holy Spirit. So that a year or so later, a little more than two years maybe, by Acts 21.20, As Paul goes to Jerusalem, James and the elders of the church in Jerusalem tell him how many thousands of the Jews are believing in Christ. And if they believed, then they understood that Jesus was the one, that he was the one Gabriel calls the Most High, the Anointed One. What method does Jesus use to identify himself in this conversation with men 
that are actively seeking to take his life, he points to the cross. When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. In John chapter 12, Jesus is exalted, drawing all to himself. John 12 takes place some months following the earlier account. Jesus is in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And as it happened in John chapter 12, verse 20, there were certain Greeks among those who came up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and in turn Andrew and Philip told Jesus. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. Now my soul is troubled. And what should I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by and heard said it had thundered. or Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus answered and said, this voice did not come because of me, but for your sake. Now is the judgment of the world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. He's talking about the cross. Clearly, being lifted up is a euphemism for the cross. And we can look back in the other scriptures and see the same thing as well. Why is this request of these Greek people the thing that sets everything in motion? Maybe it's not. Isaiah tells us in several places that the Messiah is a light to the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. So Jesus, again, in 1224, he's foretelling his own death when he talks about being glorified. And in 25 and 26, he's extending salvation and ministry to those who will follow. In verse 27, he has what I think is very human thought. Jesus had very human thoughts. He says, now my soul is troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, I came to this hour. He says, basically, this is what I'm here for. But you know, it's, it's fascinating that these thoughts were in his head. He, Father, save me from this hour. He had a desire to pray. That, hey, you guys, three times in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed that the cup might pass from him. Jesus didn't want to die. He didn't want to die. 
But he wanted to obey the Father more. Again, in 27, he says, this is basically, this is what I'm here for. God help us, folks, to have such a presence of mind in difficult days. To realize this is what we're here for. This is God's purpose. God is, this is not an accident. This is not a mistake. It's not a coincidence. This is why I am here. God has set me in this place at this time for a purpose, for such a time as this, just like Esther. God has a purpose for me. I don't want to walk away from the testing of my faith having folded under, under pressure. Pressure's in your head. Courage and strength and wisdom come from the Lord. Jesus says in verse 28, Father, glorify your name. And this voice comes from heaven. I both glorified it, will glorify it again. Therefore, the people who stood by heard it and said it thundered or angel had spoken. This wasn't the voice of an angel. This is the voice of God. What a thing. The voice of God speaking out over Christ in Jerusalem. You know, folks, we're going to hear the voice of God soon. We are going to hear his voice. I think we should prepare ourselves. Jesus says in verse 31, Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world is cast out. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all peoples to myself. Again, signifying by what death he would die. It's kind of fascinating that in in verse 31, he pronounces judgment on Satan and on this world as sort of an in-your-face before he mentions his own death. Now the world is judged. And of course, you know, he's going to do it. This is the plan of the ages. This is the reason the Father has raised up the people of Israel the nation of Israel, to be a pulpit from which the whole world is drawn to Jesus Christ. To be that that refuge. What does Jesus say back in verse 23? The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. He's not speaking about the Last Supper. He's not talking about his trial or the opportunity to talk to the high priest or Pilate. Jesus is speaking of fulfilling the word of God in his suffering and in his resurrection as well. You see, folks, suffering is more than just suffering. There is a purpose. There is a tangible, practical purpose. Jesus' suffering is his exaltation. It is his glory in a very real sense. It is the cost. It is the expense. King David, in the same place, many years before, refused to take a gift of oxen to offer a sacrifice because he refused to offer anything to God as sacrifice that cost him nothing. It is the cost of this sacrifice. if it is according to the will of God, even for us. 1 Peter 4.19 says, Therefore let him who suffers according to the will of God commit their souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Jesus has been lifted up. He is going to draw all men to himself, folks. In fact, he has been doing that for the past 2,000 years. Remind yourself 
when you go to talk to people. I know they look like they don't want to hear about Jesus. And when you mention the name of Jesus, maybe you need Jesus in your life. The looks on their face, they just ruined their whole day. No, not the name of Jesus. You know, it's like the Wicked Witch of the West. You just splashed water all over her, melting. It's not true. It's not true. It is the name that they need to hear. It is the hope, the only hope of the world. Don't let the world lie to you. There's really, honestly, he's drawing people to himself. There's not a lot for us to do. He's done all the heavy lifting. Holy Spirit's here to nudge us along in the right direction. We just need to follow him. Like he says in in 25, He who loves his life will lose it. He who hates his life in this world will keep it for life eternal. If anyone serves me, let him follow me. Where I am, there my servant will be. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor. You guys, God has chosen as the shining punctuation of his ministry, the act of your salvation, your redemption. His sacrifice in saving you is the act of his great glory and exaltation. Why would he do that? Why would he include you in his moment in the spotlight? Why would he do that? Because he doesn't love you? Because you are unimportant? Because you are not the apple of his eye? The one person in the world, the one, the only one, who really knows you best, he knows who you are. All these other people, you've got them fooled. Even your family. The one that knows who you really are. He is the one that loves you best. I think you should cry. In 1 John 4, verse 15, it says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. He who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Love has been perfected among us in this, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear of, in love. But perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves torment, but he who fears has not been made perfect in love. We love him because he first loved us. And he has, and he does. Earlier I said that there were two very important people in God's plan. First one is Jesus. The other one is you. Because you are the one that he came for. You are the one. You know, God's infinite, right? Means that he has infinite attention. We always think that when Adam was all alone before Eve was born, that Adam got a lot of attention from God. You get as much attention from God as Adam ever did. Because he's infinite. He can follow you around all day and watch everything you do. And he does. All day long, every day. Because you are the one that he came for. You are the object of his affection 
You are the one that he died for upon the cross. In Acts chapter 20, the Apostle Paul is encouraging the leaders of the church in Ephesus. He tells them to shepherd, to care for the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Not a thing that God takes lightly. What did Jesus say to the Apostle, or rather to Saul, as he was going to Damascus? Why are you persecuting me? He didn't mention any of the church people that Saul had thrown in jail. He says, why are you persecuting me? God takes it very seriously. You know, folks, right now in Syria, today, the 12th of October, 2014, in Syria and in Iraq, and unfortunately in a bunch of other places as well, we have brothers and sisters, and some of them just small children, that are suffering the fate of crucifixion, of death upon a cross. And this is unfortunately the truth. It's happening now, right now today. People are giving their lives for the name of Jesus. Not to mention the many that are in prison and tormented and tortured. I watched a a documentary the other day Uh, Friday night, actually, on terrorist attack in Nairobi, Kenya. Big, huge mall. Maybe you remember it was last year in 2013. Uh, El-Shabaab militants came over from the Sudan. They took over the shopping mall. They held it for about 40 hours or more. They killed more than 80 people over there, and it was pretty horrific. And the documentary had all the uh, security video footage of the whole... You could see the whole thing. See everything. And... uh, the people who some of the people who survived the interview and they talk about all that went on and later on after the fact they interview people some of the militants in the Sudan they've got the the same flag the ISIS flag you know their franchise this one lady who was able to escape um, she shared that they they were hiding for like eight hours ten hours in this one part of the supermarket. And uh, they let uh, one lady who had a couple of small children, they let her go. They just let her walk out. She left. A Westerner, she was American or British, I'm not sure. And there was another girl there who was Kenyan who stood up and they asked her, are you a Muslim? And she said, I'm a Christian. And they shot her. She's dead right then. And you know that she knew She knew that was going to happen. And she claimed the name of Jesus Christ for herself. She said, I'm a Christian. At the expense of her life. It's hard to think about these things. There are really no words to describe the horror of people under these circumstances. But remember, suffering is more than just suffering. Our suffering, our hardship, as we suffer according to the will of God, it has a real and an eternal purpose. It is part of His glory. The glory belongs to Him because we are the body of Christ. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus was 
in Luke chapter 9 dramatically changed before Peter, James, and John. It says in Luke 9.30, Behold, two men talked with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory, and they spoke of his decease, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. You know, people don't usually refer to their death as something to be accomplished. But Jesus did. And I'd like to suggest that he saw it that way because of you. Because the most important place for Jesus to be exalted is in your heart and in your mind and in your life every day. So what is the issue that you identify as the single most important thing in your life? The thing that you've accomplished. If you had to list one thing to characterize the master passion of your life, what would it be? Would other people agree that that is actually the focus of your life? And if so, what does that say about you? Father, we thank you, Lord. We thank you for being here with us today. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that brings to life your word. And Father, just gives us opportunity, Lord, to draw near to you and to seek your favor. Lord, we thank you for the grace we don't deserve, Lord, the forgiveness that you have lavished upon us, Lord. The amazing blessing, Lord, that you have set upon us as your children to call us your children. Father, we are so grateful. And Lord, we pray. We, Father, we confess to you that we have, we have sinned. We have sinned, Lord, in so many ways. We have failed you. And Lord, it's our desire of our heart, Lord, to be filled with your spirit and to, to go forward and to honor you and to serve you, to bring glory to your name, Father, to worship you. Help us to that end. This morning as we're praying together, every head is bowed. If there is even one person here, one watching over the internet or in the overflow room, and one person that has not surrendered your life into the hands of Jesus Christ, has not believed upon Jesus as the satisfaction for your sins, has not asked him to change your life, we want to give you that opportunity. Christ died for you on the cross. He loves you. He has an amazing plan for your life. And all you have to do is acknowledge Him. If you, if you choose to do that, if God has spoken to your heart, I'm going to pray a prayer. And I want to ask you to repeat the prayer after me as the Lord has spoken to your heart. Father, I come to you in the name of Jesus. I want to ask you to forgive me for all of my sins. I believe that Christ died on the cross for me. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe that the Bible is your word, Lord. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Save me. Change my life. I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Lord.